You know, speaking of fortune tellers, <laughs> I think that there are moments when it would be nice to know the future. What do you think? I mean, if you could know the future, it would drastically change some of your decisions, wouldn't it? And of course, not knowing the future can affect your decisions as well. It could result in you betting the wrong way. For example, in 1943, Thomas J. Watson, that was the then chairman of the board of IBM, he said, and I quote, I think that there is a world market for about five computers. A little, he was a little off. But in 1946, Hollywood film producer Daryl Zanuck of 20th Century Fox said, quote, television will not be able to hold on to any market it captures after six months because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. And my favorite is in 1903, the president of Michigan Savings Bank advised against investing in the Ford Motor Company, stating, and I quote, <laughs> the automobile is a fad, a novelty, horses are here to stay. <laughs> Didn't exactly have his finger on the pulse, did he? Not really. Really bet the wrong way. If they had only known what the future held, then they would have chosen differently. And it is especially at this time of year that all of our eyes tend to turn toward the future. Um, we wonder what it holds in store for us. And whatever it holds, we want to be prepared for it. And that is what I want to talk to you about tonight. Tonight, I want to tell you the future. I want to speak to you from the book of Esther, but I, I don't want to talk about Esther this time. Instead, I want to talk about Queen Vashti, the Gentile queen. I want to talk about the queen that is often forgotten in this book. I want to talk about the queen that disappears. I want to talk about the queen that is disobedient. But in order to reveal the future, we must first begin with the past. So let's go to Esther chapter 1, and let's take a quick look at the story. And it opens with Ahasuerus, the king of the Persian Empire. We know him as Xerxes. Let's turn over to the book of Esther chapter 1. It says, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India unto Ethiopia over 127 provinces. This is Ahasuerus. He reigned from these 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And the events of this book, they cover a nine-year period from the third year to the twelfth year of Xerxes' reign between approximately 482 to 473 B.C., which lands us right between, in the book of Ezra, chapters 6 and 7. Right in there is most likely when these events took place between King Darius and King Artaxerxes. And you're thinking, 
is that supposed to mean something to me? And the answer is no, I just want you to have the sense that I studied for this. <laughs> the story is set in the capital of his kingdom in Shushan, often called Susa, where his palace is. Now Xerxes, his father, Darius, invaded Greece and he had his hat handed to him. He was humiliated at the Battle of Marathon. I mean, we all know about that, right? <laughs> that was embarrassing. And uh, Xerxes wasn't having it, right? So he decided to avenge his father. He was going to invade Greece again. I think we have a map that kind of shows you uh, the basic trajectory. But in order for him to invade Greece, he was going to have to consolidate all of his power in his kingdom. He needed to make a grand show of his glorious wealth and power to instill confidence in his princes and all of his nobles. Because what he really needed, okay, after his dad blew his college account, you know, after he blew all the money on the first war, what he needed more than anything was he needed men and he needed money, right? He had to rebuild his wealth and his armies after his father's defeat because wars are very expensive. So he had to put on a show like he doesn't need their money so that the nobles will give him their money. That's the game. And so the king throws a six month long feast with golden goblets surrounded by luxurious linen and marble. And he establishes at the outset that everyone's allowed to drink as much as they want. And that really brings you to the beginning of chapter one. That's the reason why he's throwing this feast is he's trying to consolidate all of his power so that he can invade Greece and avenge his father and expand his kingdom. He's making a grand show of his power so that he can gain more power, a grand show of his glory for more glory, a grand show of his riches for more riches. But the grand finale of the feast was to be the presentation of his beautiful bride, Queen Vashti, and she was, you know, she was off to the side. She was throwing a party of her own with just her and the ladies, right? They're off to the side, and they're kind of doing their own thing. However, a huge scandal uh, ensues when Vashti refuses to show herself to the king and his nobles. Vashti was a disobedient bride, and this was an embarrassment to the king, and it sent a terrible message to the people of his kingdom. I mean, if this guy can't rule his own wife, how's he going to rule a kingdom, much less invade Greece? It was a terrible embarrassment and a huge scandal. So Vashti had her crown removed, and then she just disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to her. I mean, we can guess, but uh, nobody knows, man. She just disappears. She's gone. And this is the setup for one of the most interesting stories in the Bible, but there is more here in chapter one than meets the eye. Vashti's role may be small, but it is significant. Chapter one tells us not just the future, chapter one tells us our future. That's really what chapter one pictures for us. We know that the book shows the time of tribulation where the nation of Israel will go through that and they'll be pursued by the Antichrist. And we, we all know the picture that Esther sets out. But in chapter one is where we find our future. And the first thing that we see in chapter one is number one, a rebellious bride. 
The first two chapters of this book, they show us the picture of a Gentile bride that is removed and replaced by a Jewish one. Now, I don't have to tell all of you students, we saw them all up here, you guys know this picture, is nothing new. It's a picture of the rapture of the Gentile church, and then the nation of Israel replaces that bride, and they go through the tribulation, they're pursued by the Antichrist, exactly as we see it laid out in the book of Esther. So doctrinally, that places chapter one right before the rapture. It places us right in the last days before the rapture, what we call the Laodicean church age. That's what we see in chapter one. That is where we live today. We live in chapter one of the book of Esther. Are you following with me? All right. Chapter one shows us these last days. Now take a look at the picture and we will see what our immediate future holds for us. We see a great picture. The first thing that we see about this Laodicean church age, this church, that's what we call it based upon Revelation chapter three, this church of the last days before the rapture happens. And I believe that it's going to happen at any moment. I believe we are looking at the end. And what we see, first of all, in this chapter is that Laodicea, what is that church about? Laodicea is, first of all, a big show. That's what the Laodicean church is about. Laodicea is a big show. You see this really in verses one to six. And I wish we had time to go through and break every single word apart, but we don't. But I will just say this, as he throws this enormous party to show all of his glorious power and his riches, just as Xerxes is putting on a big show in order to consolidate his power, that is exactly what the Laodicean church is about. The Laodicean church is about the consolidation of power. They are putting on the big show of wealth and power because really what they need and really the measure for the Laodicean church is the same as what Xerxes needed. They need men and money. And so they put on the big show because that's what they're looking to get. And to put it in more churchy language, what they need are members and money. That is the measure for the Laodicean church. I was, I was sitting down with this pastor and I was talking to him and he was laying out his plan for Christmas. This was years ago. And he's like, man, I got this great plan for Christmas. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, lay it out for me, man. And so he's like, well, I'm going to buy this huge Christmas tree. And I was like, all right, that's uh, edgy, you know? And, uh, <laughs> And so he's going to have this uh, huge Christmas tree and he's going to put it out in front of the church. He's going to get all these wonderful gifts and not spare any expense, you know, these wonderful gifts for all the kids in the neighborhood. And I'm going to have them come and we're going to give them away, give away all these gifts to them. I was like, well, that, man, that's sweet. That's cool. He's like, yeah, man. He says, because he says, if I can get three or four of these families to join the church, he's like, if even three of them uh, start tithing, I'll more than triple my money. And that's what it's all about, folks. If you're wanting to know what it's like out there, that's what the Laodicean church holds for us. It's about nickels and noses, man. It's about members and money. Yeah, you know, we're not too sure about this guy. We're not too sure about his character, but boy, he sure is talented. 
I mean, whatever we got to do to get them in here, because our mission in the Laodicean church is to fill up a room. We have to be the biggest in town. We, maybe we have to compromise a little, but what is the harm as long as more people hear the message? So we may slide on our position of the Bible a little bit. We may turn a blind eye to sin in the body. And of course, it's if, if it, the sin is in the staff, if there's any scandal, we'll just sweep that scandal right under the carpet. We have to, as the Laodicean church, we have to keep our eye on the ball. The only thing that matters is farther, bigger, and more. Get them in, pack them in, and just give them something to do so that they don't leave. It's entertainment, folks. Just come in one, come all, bring them all in, because after all, there is no business like soul business, right? That is what it, what happened? I thought I was getting ready to get an award or something. I'm a little let down. But that's exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. That's what it tells us. It's not just my experience, it's what it tells us in the Bible. It says unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, right? But you know that you're wretched. You don't know that you're wretched and you're poor, miserable, blind and naked. It's all a show. They're actually poor and miserable, blind and naked, but they put on the show, man. They put on the show. But not only is Laodicea a big show, but Laodicea is about pleasure. That's what you see in verses 7 to 8. They, they go into detail in this verse to actually tell us what the rules were for the wine at the party. Do you see that? And they tell us that the rule was, right, it, it's kind of this statement that none did compel. Everyone's supposed to drink according to their own thing. None does compel. And what that basically means in our language is free refills. That's what that means. It was Henry Ironside in his commentary on Esther, he explains that this statement, none did compel, has also been referred to as the right of, of private judgment. And it's confirmed by what he says here at the end of verse 8. Do you see that right at the end of verse 8? That there was to be no limit on how much wine that they could have, as it says at the end of verse 8, quote, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. It's free refills, baby. You can have as much as you want. It means that everyone could throw off the normal rules of decorum and just drink as much wine as they wanted at the party. That was the law of the feast. Man, I, do I even need to make the analogy between that and the Laodicean church? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for all men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters. It says, they will be, in verse 4, they will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having the form of godliness, but no power. It's just empty. This feast here in Esther chapter 1, it pictures our everyday lives. That's what we do, man. We just kind of float and ooze around from one pleasure to the next. Man, we, we eat so much, don't we? I mean, I do. I can't speak for you. My wife, 
she's made of nothing but salad and smart water. But I eat a ton of food, right? Just, we eat so, I went to this one restaurant and they had this dessert that was called Death by Chocolate. We have so much food, we make jokes about killing ourselves with the food. Death by chocolate. Man, if Laodicea had merch, that would be on their t-shirt, right? <laughs> we get drunk, man, on sugar and fat and soda pop. But we don't watch porn, at least. No, we just watch Game of Thrones. Or some other soft porn show on Netflix or Amazon. But of course, even that's a lie, because we're all watching porn, too. I mean, the stats are in. You guys act like nobody knows you're watching it. But the statistics tell us that over 50% of the people that attend church watch the stuff. We fool around and we just pray to God that she doesn't get pregnant. We lie and cheat if it suits us. We debate about doctrinal details while we treat our families like dirt. We've gone past feeling and have turned his grace into lasciviousness and we just watch film after film, and we just eat and drink and fornicate as much as we want until the point that we are so unhealthy and sad that we need therapy and an insulin shot just to stay alive. And then we come to church and we sing about sacrifice. That's Laodicea, folks. It's a sham. The Laodicean church that you read about in Revelation 3 is a sham, and that's the future. That's the future of his bride. Laodicea is also about religion in verse 9. Do you notice that Vashti, she's not celebrating with the queen, she's celebrating off on her own. Do you see that in verse 9? She's holding her own separate party from the king. This is the purest picture of the Laodicean church age, the bride celebrating separate from her king, Revelation 3.20. We've all read that verse, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, Jesus is on the outside of his own house. And they're in there having church. And Jesus is not in there with them. They're off just celebrating, having worship. It's all about religion. They're very religious people. Very spiritual people. They all own at least three pairs of yoga pants. They're very spiritual people, man. They love the stuff and they love to sing and worship, but Jesus has nothing to do about it. And the, and the result, what is the end of the story? Laodicea is disobedient. We see that in verses 10 to 18. This is exactly what the Bible predicts about our age. Vashti says, no, I'm not going to come display my beauty before your men. And all the men freak out and they wonder, what are we going to do? What is the whole kingdom going to think? All, all of a sudden, all the wives are going to start disobeying their husbands. If the queen doesn't obey her husbands, we don't know what to do. So they had to give her the axe. She is a disobedient bride. And that's exactly what the Bible predicts about the age in which we live. Because when our king calls us to display our beauty before the world, we will refuse him. When he calls us to worship him in the beauty of holiness, we will refuse. When he calls us to display the beauty of the gospel, we will refuse. When he calls us to display the beauty of his glory, we will refuse. That is what the Bible predicts about our church age. We are not simply a bride that disappears. 
We are a bride that is disobedient. The Laodicean church is not only disobedient, but the Laodicean church is deposed. They say, this is the only thing, the king says, what can we do to this lady according to the law because she has made me so cross, the king says. What can I do? And they said, man, you gotta get rid of her. They deposed her, they removed her from her royal office. That's what deposed means. But listen, let me tell you what it actually means. What it means was that they removed her crown from her. Vashti lost her crown. And we know this because in Esther chapter 2, verse 17, it tells us that Xerxes gave that crown to Esther. See, Vashti lost her crown, and that is the Laodicean church. The Laodicean church is going to forfeit their crowns in heaven because of their disobedience to him here. Right before the church in Laodicea, in, in Revelation chapter 3, right before Christ writes that letter to the church in Laodicea, he writes a, a letter to the church of Philadelphia. And do you remember his warning to them? In Revelation 3 verse 11, he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, why? That no man take thy crown. He warns them, even before Laodicea gets here. He says, hold on to what you have so that nobody can take your crown from you. Second Timothy chapter two, verse five says, and if a man strive for the masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive what? Lawfully. That means if you're in the race, and you're in the mission, and you're working for it, but you break the rules, you are disqualified, you don't get the crown. That means if you have a successful ministry, but you had to stab your brother in the back to get there, you get no crown. If you have a successful ministry, and everybody thinks that you're awesome, okay, but you're sleeping with your secretary, no crown, and on and on we go. That's exactly what will happen to the Laodicean church. They will lose their crown. And then, of course, the Laodicean church disappears. They're raptured. The Gentile church will be raptured and be replaced, as verse 19b says, they will be replaced by someone better than she. Better. Now, why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know this stuff? Why in the world do we even need to study eschatology? Why do we need to know what the future holds for us? I think the study of eschatology is absolutely essential. It is so important that you understand what the future holds, and I'll tell you why. Because what you believe about the future will determine how you behave today. What you believe about the future will determine how you behave today. You see, when we read the book of Esther, we do not only see a picture of a rebellious bride, but we also see a picture of a remnant bride. We see a picture of, see the whole rest of the story, and I know it's a devotional application, it's inspirational application, but the whole rest of the story is about this wonderful woman named Esther. And she is there in contrast to Vashti. And she is obedient, she is brave, she is courageous, she is beautiful, so beautiful that everybody takes notice, even the king, and asks her to be his queen. She is chosen to be the queen, and the story tells about the faithful few who take a stand at the risk of their own lives 
It's the story about this remnant. You see, we all know as dispensationalists that every dispensation ends in failure, right? Including the church age. There is no golden age coming. There's no great revival. We don't win the world to Christ. We, we lose this one. Now, we win the war. That's for sure. Christ will sit on his throne, Amen. and we will sit beside him. Amen. But we lose this battle. We understand that every dispensation ends in failure, including the church age, but... Another thing that every dispensation has in common is that every dispensation has a faithful remnant. There is always a faithful few who choose to count the cost and stand true to God's word. And that is why we study the future, because it determines the kind of church that we want to be today. We have to recognize the future church uh, is headed for a disobedient future. We have to recognize that that's the future that all of us are headed for. We have to accept that even though we win the war, that we are going to lose this battle. We have to choose to stand in the face of that certain future as a faithful remnant. We have to decide that that is who we are going to be. We are not going to go along with the current. You see, it's such a difficult thing that we have up against us because not only do we have to go against the current of this world and the flesh, but now the bonus is now we have to go against the current of the church itself. And we have to be willing to take that stand. And even though we know it is a losing battle, we are the ones that say we will be that remnant, we will be the faithful few, and we will not bow. That's who we have to choose to be. Knowing the future, it sharpens our focus on the mission. Knowing the future redefines what victory looks like. We know what the future of the church will be like. 2 Timothy 4.3 tells us, these are all the verses that you already know, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We know that's coming, right? We already see that around us all the time. Listen, these megachurches that are out there, if they're going to maintain their audiences, they are going to have to make a deal with the world. There's no way in the world that they can maintain those crowds without making some sort of a deal. They will not be able to endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. The Spirit speaketh expressly in 1 Timothy 4.1 that in the latter times that they will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. Titus 1.16, they will profess that they know God, but in works they will deny him being abominable. They will be disobedient. And unto every good work they will be reprobate. That's what's coming. Right? That's what's coming. We know that before the man of sin can be revealed, there will be not a great revival, but a great falling away. That is what is coming. So that redefines what victory looks like for us. If we know that that's coming, then that changes our today. Do you see that? 
It changes our today. So what does victory look like for the remnant? Now I want you to follow me with these verses. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. A lot of pages turned out there. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16 says, These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be an example. Okay, we're talking about what real victory looks like. Be an example to the believers in word and conversation and charity and spirit, faith and purity. He says, till I, get a, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. That sounds exciting. Does Paul, Paul know how to party or what? Man, we're going to get together and we're going to pop some Manischewitz and we're going to just have some reading and exhortation and doctrine. It says, neglect not the gift that was given to thee by prophecy, by the laying on the hands of the presbytery. But he says, meditate upon these things and give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. He says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. He says, for in doing this, you shall save yourself and those that hear you. He says, if you will commit yourself to these things, to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, to being an example in front of the believers in these areas of your character, he says, not only will you save those that hear you, but you will save your own life as well. And he, of course, means saving ourselves from being pulled into the current of this Laodicean age. That is how we stand victorious as a remnant. 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 12 says, O man of God, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. This is how we stand victorious. This is what victory looks like in the remnant church. 2 Timothy 1, 12 to 14, hold fast the form of sound words. Right here, guys. We have to hold on to this because they're coming for it. 2 Timothy 2, 21 to 22. If any man therefore purge himself from these things, he shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified, meet for the master's use, as in, if you are not having an honorable life or sanctified life, you are not meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Second Timothy 4, 1 to 2, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's what victory looks like in the remnant church. We preach God's word. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 4, 1 to 2. This was referenced last night. He says, Therefore, seeing that we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. This is how we stand victorious. That we have this ministry, that we have this mission, and we refuse to quit. We will not quit 
We will not stop being soul winners. We will not stop being disciple makers. We will not stop praying. We will not stop preaching. We will not stop living a holy life according to the word of God. We have this mission and nothing can make us stop because by the way, that's all the devil wants you to do. And he will give you problems. He will whisper sweet nothings in your ear. He will give you trials and temptations. He will seduce you. He will do all of these things to confuse you and distract you. But the only thing that he wants you to do is to stop. That's all he cares about is that you stop. He says, we faint not. He says, but it's not enough just not to quit. It's not enough to just not quit. He says, but we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. That's what's killing us, guys. That is what kills our church. We have a lot of people in here that are brave Ministers, strong, people that can really do the work. But the stuff that is killing us, man, is the hidden things of dishonesty. Our definition of success has to change. When you know that we lose this battle, our definition of success has to change. Because if you know that you're going to lose, then the issue becomes, how are you going to lose? That becomes the issue. Do you see the difference? In other words, now the question for me is, how am I going to go out? It changes my definition for success. In these last days, success simply can't be enough anymore. It's like the only virtue left, man, in the 21st century is success. That's all you have to be. They will forgive all manner of sins if it works. All you have to do is just be successful. And success alone simply can't be enough anymore. We must be, as a remnant bride, we must be virtuous. We must be honorable. We must determine to be a people who will be obedient to the mission. Now listen to me on this. We must be determined that we're going to be a people who are obedient to the mission, but we will do it for the honor of his name or not at all. Now that is the posture of a remnant church. We're determined we will do the mission for the honor of his name or not at all. Members and money can no longer be our definition of victory. In these last days, the honor of his name must be paramount. In the remnant, these last days, our virtue becomes our victory. I can remember when I was a kid, and I would hear the teachers, maybe you guys remember this, you hear a teacher, you know, I'm like, seven or eight years old and we're just wanting to play the soccer game and then you have that one teacher that's like listen it's it's not whether you win or lose it's how you play the game and I just remember standing there thinking well she's a communist <laughs> I mean really only a communist would say that right I was like I don't know teach if you notice this but we're keeping score man uh, I, I came out here to win I've always been somewhat competitive. I'm like, listen, I, I, I get, man, you know, you grew up in the 70s, you're a hippie, and I, I get that. 
Okay, but I, I, I want to really beat these guys bad. I want to stomp these guys so bad that they need counseling from their pastor. <laughs> we came here to win. But I think about that a lot. I, I won that game, by the way. <laughs> um, I think about that a lot. It's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. And I think that in these last days, that statement is going to become more true than ever. In these last days, it's how you play. That's actually how you win. As we carry on making disciples, our victory will be determined in three main areas in our Bible. We must hold on to it. We cannot let this, we cannot be, have to be like Samuel. We must not let one of his words fall to the ground. We have to hold on to our Bible. Doctrine. We must study and preach sound doctrine. You should study your Bibles the way the doctor studies medicine. You should be in it. You should be an expert. When we are raising up disciples, discipleship is not about putting people through their paces. It's not about getting through the lessons. It's not about having so many people that have signed up. We are trying to raise samurai. We are trying to raise apprentices in disciple making. We're trying to pass this on to people who have a sword in their hands so tight that we cannot distinguish where it stops and where it starts. That it, it cleaves to our hand and we cannot let it go. We need to be people of sound doctrine. But we need to be people of holiness. We must live with honor. We must live with honor. And I think that almost everything else we do will fall into one of these three categories. If we have the right doctrine, then our gospel and discipleship will be right. If we have the right Bible, then we can get the right doctrine. And if we have the right Bible and the right doctrine, then we know how to be holy before him. Almost everything we do will come from these, and I think these are the areas where they will attack us the most. Our Bible, our doctrine, and our holiness. As we begin to make disciples, it is more vital than ever that we cannot compromise on these. It is no longer enough for us to simply get bigger. That is not enough anymore. Not because we know where we're headed. That's why it's not enough. It is simply not enough anymore. We cannot compromise on these things. You see, the true test in the last days will be our virtue. The true test will be if you are serving for the honor of his name, because that's what the game's all about, isn't it? His name. That's what it's always been about, is his name, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 5, it says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations. And that's where we usually stop. But we'd miss the last part of that verse, because why are we doing all of that? For his name. Acts 5.41, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. Why? For his name. Acts 9.15-16, but the Lord said to him, go your way. Talking about the Apostle Paul, he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul answered, he says, why are you guys breaking my heart? I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem. Why? For the name of Christ. 
Do you think that I'm willing to die for higher attendance? I'm not willing to die for a better attendance record, but for the name, for his name. That's why we do it. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 to 12, he says, Wherefore we all pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all good pleasure of his goodness, the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him. See, if we alter the gospel in order to win more to Christ, we may win more, but we still lose. If we alter our doctrine to increase our membership or our network, we still lose. If we preach well in public, but we live in sin in private, then we have still lost. Because what good is it if I have preached to others and I myself am a castaway? And by the way, being a castaway doesn't necessarily mean you get caught. If we are spreading his name while we dishonor his name, then we lose. In these, last name, in these last days, his name is everything. The honor of his name. Now listen to me. Just got a couple minutes left. Right after the events of Esther chapter 1. It's such a wonderful story. Right after the events of Esther chapter 1. Before we get into chapter 2, there's a space of time. There's a couple of years of time between those two chapters. And Xerxes does, in fact raise up an army to invade Greece. He figures out a way to cross the Hellespont and he just rages through Thrace, right down, heading toward the heart of Greece. And there's only one road. He has amassed an army of some say half a million soldiers, one of the largest armies ever. And he's, he's marching down. There's only one road that can contain an army of this size. So the general, the Athenian general, comes up with this plan. He sends 7,000 Greek and Spartan troops, and their job, led by Leonidas, the king of the Spartans, they were there to block them at the pass of Thermopylae, to give Greece time. And these 7,000 men, they fought against them for seven days, holding them back until a fellow Spartan that lived in the area betrayed them and kind of gave a secret path to the Persians and they came around and they outflanked them and they just demolished their rear guard. And when Leonidas, now check this out, when Leonidas, when he saw that there was no hope of victory, when he saw that they were going to die, he told all of the Greek soldiers, he says, I want you guys to be dismissed. I want you to go back and I want you to fortify the Navy. And we're going to hold him, Leonidas, with 300 of his men. We are going to stay and we are going to stand and we're going to hold them for as long as we can. 300 men against half a million soldiers and they held them for three days. For three days they stood there in the pass and they held them. And they fought the Persians until they died. But their loss was also a great victory. 
You see, they fought them for three days, and in that time, because they fought them so hard, they, they killed thousands and thousands of Persians. And in that time, they completely demoralized the Persian army. And not only that, but they gave Greece time to fortify their army and their navy so that right after that battle, Greece defeated them at Salamis. It was a victory mostly because Leonidas and his 300, they never surrendered. And they never bowed their knee to Xerxes. It wasn't long ago that they made a famous movie about this battle entitled 300. Maybe some of you have seen it. And in this film, it's a great scene when an emissary from Xerxes comes to offer peace to Leonidas and his 300 if they will just surrender. And when they refused, he scoffed at them and he said, the armies of a thousand nations will descend upon you and our arrows will blot out the sun. To which the soldier looked at him and he said, then we will fight in the shade. Now that is what a remnant bride looks like. We know we're going to win the war, but we are going to lose this battle. And even though we can see that victory is not possible, we are going to stand. In these last days, we must decide that we will never surrender, that we will never compromise, that we will never dip our colors. We will never dishonor his name. In these last days, success cannot be enough. Getting bigger, getting more, it is not enough. In these last days, our virtue must be our victory. So my question to you all is where is our 300? Like Gideon against the Midianites, 300 men against that entire army and they stood strong and they were victorious. Where is our 300? Where are the men and women who will say that, man, I, it's not enough for me just to be successful. It is not enough for me to just be a soul winner. It is not enough for me to just be a disciple maker. I want to do it honorably. I want to make sure that as I preach this word, that I honor his name while I do it. That whenever I sit and sing these songs, that it is true in my private life as much as it is in my public worship. I want to be a man and a woman who is virtuous before my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That we are going to hold on to our Bibles. That we are going to hold on to our doctrine. That we are going to hold on to our holiness. And no matter what they do to offer us peace, a peace treaty, we will never surrender. We will never get in, give in. We will always go down with the ship. Where is our 300? That is what I want to invite you guys to make a decision about now. I wish you would bow your heads and I wish the musicians would come forward. I want you guys to consider this tonight as we look forward to this future, knowing the future that is going to come. What we need is our 300. What we need is a woman like Esther who was willing to take a stand and be able to look that danger in the eye and say, if I perish, then I perish. We need more men and women just like Esther. We need men like Mordecai who are willing to take a stand, to be those faithful few, to say, I will not compromise my honor 
or the honor of his name. If that is you tonight, as we sing, I want you to come down here and I want you to make that commitment to the Lord. I want you to make that between you and the Lord to say, I will be one of those. I want to be a part of that remnant church. I don't want to be carried away in the current of this Laodicean church because we know it's coming. But tonight, I want you to make that commitment to the Lord. As we look into 2024, will you be one of those 300 as we sing? Amen, brother. Is that you tonight? Would you make that commitment to the Lord tonight? That you want to be a part of that remnant bride, not the rebellious bride. That you want to be one of those who will stand and will not compromise. Will that be you? Will you make that commitment as we head into 2024? Tonight is your opportunity. I encourage you to come. And you say, well, it's already true about me. Well, make that commitment to the Lord anyway. Come and let's, let's do it. Let's, let's make this right. Let's prepare ourselves for the future. We know that it's coming. Now is your opportunity. Will you be one of the 300 that will stand? In the face of a losing fight, will we redefine what victory is? Will we be among those people who redefine what victory is? That our victory is not just being successful at current projects, but that we are virtuous while we do it. Will you be one of those? Now is your chance. Now is your opportunity. Make that commitment to Christ. And whatever it is that you have in your life, now is your opportunity in order to renounce all the hidden things of dishonesty in your life. Now is your chance. Just come and privately to the Lord, just take care of that and get it out of your life once and for all. We need you guys to stand. You guys are the future. We know what is coming. And we need you guys to hold on to your virtue. Father, Lord, I want to ask you to bless all of these here that are making this commitment to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to be a part of that remnant bride, that we would be more like Esther than Vashti, that we be a part of those faithful few that decide that we're going to stand even at the risk of our own lives. Even though we cannot win, Lord, we are going to have a different kind of victory, that we refuse to surrender, that we refuse to dip our colors, we refuse to bow our knee, that we want to hold on to our Bibles, Lord. We want to hold on to our doctrine. We want to hold on to our holiness and never dishonor your name as we accomplish our mission. Please help us to be that bride for you. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.